Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. The United States has been wrought with dam failures ever since record-keeping began. It's hard enough to stop a body of water from traveling. It's even harder to contain the force and the weight that accompanies the flow of water. This week, we are going to be discussing the South Fork Dam failure and subsequent flooding that took place. We're going to place you right at the foot of the massive wave that swept through Johnstown, Pennsylvania following the dam failure and witness firsthand the death and destruction that occurred. Welcome back to Destination Disaster. I'm your host, Devin Carney. Dams carried a storied history here in the United States and can trace the first large federal projects back to the early 1820s when the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers began building wing dams to aid in the navigation and travel of the Ohio River. As the United States began to develop its industrial infrastructure throughout the Midwest and western portions of the country in its infancy. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, along with the Department of the Interior and the Bureau of Reclamation, has written a comprehensive paper outlining the earliest attempts to harness the inland waterways throughout the United States. The impulse to improve waterways was stimulated by the profound changes transforming the young nation. Beginning as early as 1820, the Industrial Revolution ushered in a period of unprecedented economic development for the United States. Was the sudden and rapid industrialization in the country cause for concern that maybe the dams being built were inadequately designed to handle extreme hydrostatic pressures being placed on the dam? Data doesn't lie. And reporting from Stanford University's Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering program shows glaring faults and disasters waiting to happen. Since record keeping of dam failures began in 1848, each year the United States has witnessed at least one dam fail. Charts indicate that failures can occur at any time and occur more frequently during the initial fill of the reservoir following completion and once dams reach approximately 50 to 75 years in age. Not one state in the United States has avoided a dam failure and each state has experienced one and Georgia is currently leading the nation in failures with 238. It's possible that these dams continue to age and experience the weather extremes that have been occurring lately. Erosion, intense heat, and extreme rainfalls can lead to catastrophic failures. So why are we discussing the South Fork Dam failure on the first episode back? Dam failures, in my opinion, represent something that you cannot plan for. Dams hold intense pressures and metric tons of water that once free to flow will take anything in its path. Essentially, the only thing you can do is remain vigilant ensure maintenance is up to date and wait and see. If there is enough time, you could potentially evacuate those in the path, but in most cases, there is little to no time to plan one. Originally constructed between 1838 to 1853, the South Fork Dam was built by the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania as part of a massive infrastructure project that was proposed by the state legislature in 1826. 
This project would allow for trade to be conducted between Pennsylvania's two major cities during this period, Pittsburgh and Philadelphia, by building a series of canals and railroads. The South Fork Dam was an earthenwork dam, meaning that this dam was primarily composed of earth layered upon each other. Now, a correct earthenwork dam utilizes layers of dirt, clay, sandy soil, and rock that are layered, complete with a solid core that serves as the impermeable barrier. Now, following the completion of the initial project by the state, both the dam and lake were sold to private parties, which would lead to neglect. From here, we watch the critical failures and ignorance that would ultimately lead to the failure of the dam and the deaths of over 2,000 people and the destruction of entire towns. Henry Clay Flick would lead a group of investors to purchase the newly abandoned dam and lake. The dam itself had initially been built properly. However, following the purchase, the dam was modified to be lowered to allow for carriages to pass. Additional alterations including added a fish screen within the spillway to catch fish. While they believe these alterations necessary, this would be the ultimate cause of the failure. I'm not sure if you notice a common trait amongst the human-caused disasters that I've covered so far in this show, but complacency, ignorance, and ineptitude seem to be the main causes for these catastrophic events. Now, before we jump directly into the flood and destruction of the city, I wanted to run you through a brief history. The city is named in honor of its original settler, Joseph Johns, a Swiss-German immigrant. The city of Johnstown is situated along the Conemaugh River, and through the 1800s, the city grew and became a key transfer point and port for the Pennsylvania Mainline Canal. While canal transport declined by the mid-1800s, the city also became a stop on the Pennsylvania Railroad Mainline and connected with the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad as well, spurring growth. Iron, coal, and steel quickly became central to the town of Johnstown. By 1860, the Cambria Iron Company of Johnstown was the leading steel producer in the United States, outproducing steel giants in Pittsburgh and Cleveland. Through the second half of the 19th century, Johnstown made much of the nation's barbed wire. Johnstown prospered from skyrocketing demand in the western United States for barbed wire. Twenty years after its founding, the Cambria Works was a huge enterprise sprawling over 60 acres in Johnstown and employing 7,000. It owned 40,000 acres of valuable mineral lands in a region with a ready supply of iron, coal, and limestone. By the time the city reached the 1880s, it was home to nearly 30,000. Now, as we move into the portion of the episode where we begin discussing the events leading up to the flood and ultimately the disaster itself, I always want to provide a trigger warning for those who may be squeamish or have certain fears that could be triggered during this portion. We are going to be discussing drowning and those crushed in the resulting wave of mud, water, and debris. I urge you to fast forward through this portion of the episode if you are squeamish. Let's go ahead and jump into the events leading up to the dam failure and ultimately the wave that would destroy the town. On May 28, 1889, a low pressure area formed over Nebraska and Kansas resulting in what would at the time be recorded as the single highest amount of rainfall ever recorded in this part of the country. According to the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, an astonishing 6 to 10 inches of rain fell in only 24 hours over this region. During this storm, both telegraph lines and sections of railroad had been washed away, and the Conemaugh River was already about to exceed its banks as it flowed through the city of Johnstown. On the morning of May 31st, in a farmhouse on a hill just above the South Fork Dam, Elias Unger, president of the South Fork Fishing and Hunting Club, awoke to the sight of Lake Conemaugh swollen after a night-long heavy rainfall. 
Unger ran outside in the still pouring rain to assess the situation and saw that water was nearly cresting the dam. He quickly assembled a group of men to save the face of the dam by trying to unclog the spillway. It was blocked by the broken fish trap and debris caused by the swollen water line. Other men tried digging a ditch at the other end of the dam on the western abutment which was lower than the dam crest. The idea was to let more water out of the lake to try to prevent overtopping of the crest but without success. Most remained on the top of the dam, some plowing earth to raise it, while others tried to pile mud and rock on the face to save the eroding wall. Many attempts at saving the dam included an engineer named John Park potentially cutting a new spillway to prevent the water from overtopping the dam, but Park noted this would immediately lead to the dam's failure. It seems at this point there was nothing more to do than attempt to warn the city and evacuate as many residents as possible. Warning was supposedly sent twice with Elias Unger instructing Park to write to the telegraph office, warning to transmit messages to those in Johnstown of the quickly deteriorating situation at the dam. Unfortunately, those messages would never reach the telegraph office. Between 2.50 and 2.55 p.m. is when the South Fork Dam ultimately breached, causing a wall of water approximately 3.483 billions of gallons of water to escape and race downstream. As the water flowed, it gathered trees, homes, and other debris as it swept away at the landscape. The first inhabited location to be struck was South Fork. Luckily, this town was situated on high ground, and most of the citizens were able to escape the floodwaters by running into the surrounding hills. It is estimated that approximately 30 homes were destroyed or swept into the wave, and four deaths occurred. At Conemaugh Viaduct, a near 80-foot-high railroad bridge, debris became trapped here momentarily, allowing for new hydraulic head, resulting in a much stronger wave. Mineral Point, one mile away from the viaduct, was struck next. Of the 30 families that lived here, only 16 survived. The damage here was total. Everything, including the topsoil and subsoil, was washed away, leaving only exposed bedrock. A subsequent study in 2009 would show that the speed at which the floodwaters flowed through the valley exceeded 420,000 cubic feet per second, or comparable to the flow rate of the Mississippi River at its delta, which varies between 250 and 710,000 cubic feet per second. The second location to be hit by the rapidly accelerating floodwaters was the village of East Conemaugh. The water was described by many to be a rolling hill of dirt and debris. John Hess, a local railroad engineer, saved many by throwing his locomotive in reverse, activating the horn to alert the village of the impending wave. Luckily, he survived, with his train being carried off the tracks by the wave. It is estimated that 50 people died in this village. Now, one of the things that we need to remember here is that the city of Johnstown was home to the largest iron mill in the country at the time, and one of the largest exports from the Cambria Ironworks was barbed wire. As the wave continued speeding through the narrow valley, it first hit the ironworks, taking with it tons of barbed wire that would ultimately end up being the demise of many in the city. Before hitting the main part of Johnstown, the flood surge hit the Cambria Ironworks in the town of Woodvale, sweeping up railroad cars and barbed wire. Of Woodvale's 1,100 residents, 314 died in the flood. Boilers exploded when the flood hit the Gaudier Wireworks, causing black smoke to be seen by Johnstown residents. Miles of barbed wire became entangled in the debris and in the floodwaters. Nearly 60 minutes after the dam collapsed, the wave of water and debris hit Johnstown. Now, I want you to imagine hearing and feeling a slight rumble, and it continues to grow stronger and louder as the wave grows closer. Now imagine having a lovely stroll down along the riverfront when your eyes meet a 60-foot wave of death aiming right for you. 
This is the view that many had as they took their final breaths. The 60-foot wave slammed into the city at 40 miles an hour, carrying with it those unlucky enough to escape the surge's grasp. Many were crushed under debris and even caught in the barbed wire that had been carried from the ironworks. The debris crashed into Stone Bridge, creating a temporary dam, and the resulting surge generated another wave that crashed into another portion of Johnstown. Some people who had been washed downstream became trapped in an inferno as the debris that had piled up against the bridge caught fire. At least 80 people died here. The fire burned for three days. After floodwaters receded, the pile of debris at the bridge was seen to cover 30 acres and reach 70 feet high. Following the impact, debris was everywhere. At the time that this disaster happened, it was the single deadliest to occur in the United States. A total of 1,600 homes were destroyed, $17 million in property damage, or the equivalent of $524 million in 2022 occurred. Debris at the Stone Bridge covered 30 acres, and cleanup operations were to continue for years. Cambria Iron and Steel's facilities were heavily damaged. They returned to full production within 18 months. Working seven days and nights, workmen built a wooden trestle bridge to temporarily replace the Conemaugh Viaduct, which had been destroyed by the flood. The Pennsylvania Railroad restored service to Pittsburgh 55 miles away by June 2nd. Food, clothing, medicine, and other provisions began arriving by rail. Morticians traveled by railroad. Johnstown's first call for help requested coffins and undertakers. The demolition expert, Dynamite Bill Flynn, and his 900-man crew cleared the wreckage at the Stone Bridge. They cratered off debris, distributed food, and erected temporary housing. At its peak, the army of relief workers totaled approximately 7,000. The approximate death toll fluctuated a lot initially, with some believing that more than 3,000 lost their lives that day. According to records compiled by the Johnstown Area Heritage Association, bodies were found as far away as Cincinnati, Ohio, and as late as 1911. Nine entire families died in the flood, including 396 children, 124 women, and 198 men were widowed. 98 children were orphaned, and one-third of the dead, 777 people were never identified. Their remains were buried in the plot of the unknown at Johnstown's Grandview Cemetery. At the time of this disaster, there was no main body for disaster response in the United States, and mainly relied on those in the community to assist with relief efforts. However, this disaster spurred the creation of the American Red Cross by Clara Barton. She led her group to Johnstown where they remained for five months to assist in the cleanup and recovery operations. Her organization would receive donations that came from all over the world to include Russia, France, Germany, and the Ottoman Empire. In the years following the disaster, many sought to blame the Southwark Fishing and Hunting Club for ineptitude and resulting alterations that would lead to the failure of the dam. The accusations mainly focused on the failure to maintain the dam, as this is what ultimately led to the breach. The club was successfully defended in court by law firm Knox and Reed, who just happened to be members of the club. The club was never held liable and argued that the dam failed as a result of an act of God. Nonetheless, individual members of the South Fork Club, many millionaires in their day, contributed to the recovery in Johnstown. Along with about half of the club members, co-founder Henry Clay Flick donated thousands of dollars to the relief effort. After the flood, Andrew Carnegie built the town a new library. Flooding continued to plague the city even following this disaster. Major floods occurred in 1894, 1907, 1924, 1936, and 1977. In 1936, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers dredged the Conemaugh River to nearly 20 feet deep and built a concrete retaining wall that would essentially leave the town quote-unquote flood-free. However, that was not the case.
On the night of July 19, 1977, a severe thunderstorm dropped 11 inches of rain in eight hours on the watershed above the city, and the rivers began to rise. By dawn, the city was underwater that reached as high as eight feet. Seven counties were declared a disaster area, suffering $200 million in property damage, and 78 people died. Forty were killed by the Laurel Run Dam failure. Another 50,000 were rendered homeless as a result of this 100-year flood. Markers on a corner of City Hall at 401 Main Street show the height of the crests of the 1889, 1936, and 1977 floods. Firstly, I want to welcome all of you back to new releases. I'm going to try something new with the show and upload weekly once again. I think with this cadence and focus on singular events, the quality and upload frequency can increase as well. If you enjoyed this episode, give it a like, a rating, and follow the podcast on your favorite platform. If you are new, welcome. Take a few minutes to go check out some of the older episodes. Most importantly, please share this show with your friends and family. Preparedness is one of my key ethos in life, because if you aren't prepared, then the only person to blame is yourself. Next week, we are going to be discussing the deadly asbestos cloud in Libby, Montana. Go follow the show on Instagram at Destination Period Disaster and on Twitter at Dest Disaster. That is D-E-S-T-D-I-S-A-S-T-E-R. Thanks once again for listening. This has been Destination Disaster. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.